continuing, you may be seated. Our speaker today is Cody again. Many of you will remember him from about a month ago, so we're glad to have him back with us. go too far? It's not the first time anyone said that to me. Uh, <laughs> and not just because I get lost when I travel. Well, I really appreciate uh, the uh, opportunity to be back here to minister the word again. Um, I thought for sure uh, that uh, the last time I was here would be my first and my last, given what I preached on, the genealogy. Um, who does that, right? Uh, so this week, um, we're going to talk about the first 12 chapters of First Chronicles. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I, I want us to uh, turn in the Bible to Luke's Gospel in chapter 10. Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. And we'll begin reading at verse 38. Now, as they went on, <clears throat> as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And now turn over to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And we'll read the first eight verses. This is the word of God. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with, with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was, <clears throat> what was put into it. 
Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. I want to talk to you this morning about what our primary purpose in life is. And had not the scriptures revealed it to us, it would be presumptuous, perhaps even wicked, for me to stand up here and tell you, I know for certain what your purpose, your purpose is. But because I believe that scripture has revealed to us what our primary purpose is, I think I can say safely that what I'm going to tell you is, in fact, what your primary purpose should be. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God has created us for worship. God has created us to glorify him. The primary purpose for which we have been made is for the adoration and love of Almighty God. Many of you may be familiar with the first question and answer to um, what is referred to often as the Westminster Shorter Catechism. For those of you who don't know what that is, um, churches prior to the 20th century largely um, learned their doctrine by the use of catechisms. Even Baptists, many of them, used catechisms for the purposes of instruction, both for children and for adults. Now, what is a catechism? Well, for those of you who are unaware, um, a catechism is a series of questions and answers about various topics, um, particularly topics related to the Christian faith in this context. And there were many of them that were produced uh, during and after um, the Protestant Reformation, for those of you familiar with that history. Well, one of the catechisms that was produced is known as the Westminster Shorter Catechism because it was produced at Westminster Abbey and because it is shorter than the Westminster Larger Catechism. The shorter one uh, was for children, young children. Um, one person that I know of uh, actually memorized this catechism by the time he was seven years old. All 109 questions. Um, one can safely say he was not impoverished when it came to instruction. The larger catechism was used for teenagers and uh, young adults. And it's mostly a Presbyterian uh, document, although modifications of it were made by various groups of Baptists early on as well. All right, back to the message, and uh, that's just a little aside for those of you who may be unfamiliar with some of that terminology. But the first question and answer to the Westminster Shorter Catechism goes like this. What is the chief end of man? Put another way, what is the chief purpose, the chief goal for human beings? And the answer that the Westminster theologians, or as they used to be called, the Westminster divines, gave to that question was this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him 
forever. Now, we're all familiar with this idea of glorifying God. Many of us think in terms of eating and drinking or in terms of the work we do throughout the week, um, in terms of the conversations we have with people, we all want to glorify God. We want to bring honor to the name of God. But often, we don't think of God as a person or as someone to enjoy, to respond to with a warm heart. And yet, proper glorifying of God includes proper enjoyment of God. After all, it's almost impossible for us to bring honor to something or to someone we don't enjoy. Think about the spouse who's asked, well, how do you feel about your wife? And he says, well, I, I like her okay. You know, we get along most of the time. She gives me a list of things to do over the weekend, and I do them. We get along fine. Now, for single people, that might be a turnoff in terms of, well, may maybe I really don't want to get married all that quickly. But suppose you were to ask, that, uh, ask another person, another husband, who says, oh, my wife, you know, I don't know what I did to deserve her. I really love her. I, I think that I was very blessed. I was very fortunate to have this person in my life. And here are the qualities that she, she brings to the relationship. She's got a great sense of humor. She, uh, she makes sure that um, I don't do something stupid when we're out in public. <laughs> now, which testimony would you be more inclined to, to follow or want to follow? Well, presumably the second one, right? You want somebody who enjoys the person or the things that they're talking about to represent that person or those things. So I want to talk about adoring God, ad enjoying God by adoring him. The great uh, theologian John Murray writes this. He says, it is necessary for us to recognize that there is an intelligent mysticism, I love that phrase, an intelligent mysticism in the life of faith, of living union and communion with the exalted and ever-present Redeemer. He communes with his people, and his people commune with him in conscious, reciprocal love. The life of true faith cannot be that of cold, metallic ascent. It must have the passion and warmth of love and communion, because communion with God is the crown and apex of true religion. That is good stuff. So what does it mean? Murray's basically saying this. In order to live a life of true faith in God, a life of true joy in God, we must enjoy God. We must enjoy communing with God. We must enjoy thinking of the greatness and the glory and the splendor and the majesty of God. His holiness should delight us. His love should enrapture us. His grace should move us to tears. It's not just a cold, metallic thing. Any of you ever heard the old song, Wedding Rings by George Jones? Anybody listen to country music here? I, I should just say, never mind then. <laughs> 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 
Well, in any case, in, in, in the refrain of the song, one of the refrains is, the wedding ring is just a cold metallic thing because only love can make a golden wedding ring. Okay, for those of you who don't like country, I know that sounds really lame. <laughs> but it's nonetheless true, right? What good does a wedding ring do you if there's no warmth in your marriage? And what, do, what good does Bible reading or prayer or church attendance do us if our hearts are never stirred, if our hearts are never warmed by the God we wish to contemplate and to worship. So first, I want to talk about the command to adore God, and then I want to talk about the hindrances to adoring God, and last, I want to talk about one benefit there is in adoring God. So first, the command to adore God in Scripture. Take a look at Psalm 145. Psalm 145. Beginning at verse 1. Incidentally, Psalms 145 through 150 are the psalms in which there are no requests, there are no laments, there is no confession of sin. It is all pure praise. When you pray, do you ever have times of prayer where you simply wish to praise God and not simply ask him for things? Beginning at verse 1, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. David here is not simply talking about God in the abstract. David refers again and again to God as my God, my King the one that I wish to worship, the one that I am going to praise every day. Many of the Psalms call out to us to praise God. Look at Psalm 150. Psalm 150. And I'll just read the entirety of it because it's worth this one is worth memorizing. And ask yourself the question while you're reading this, is there any sense of restrained joy in this psalm, or is this pure, unadulterated joy? I'll read it when I find it. Okay, here we are. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. 
Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lyre and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with, with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud, <clears throat> loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is a psalm of exaltation. The command to adore God is everywhere in scripture. We see it in terms of creation being asked to bless the Lord in Psalm 33 and in Psalm 148. We see in Ephesians 1 where Paul gives us a sentence that's about 15 verses long in which he tells us about the great benefits that we've received in our salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us according to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And he goes on to list several other benefits. But it all begins by that great exclamation, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture commands us to adore God. Let me show you one other passage here. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> Peter is writing to Jewish believers who were scattered. And they were apparently suffering some form of terrible persecution because Peter urges them again and again to persevere and to rejoice in their sufferings. But listen to this great passage beginning at verse 8. He's talking about their love for Jesus Christ. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with what kind of joy? with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. When you come here to church, do you ever experience joy that is unspeakable and full of glory because you know that you're about to enter into the presence of the God who has loved you enough to die and rise for you? I long for that kind of joy. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of souls, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ, I'm sorry, yeah, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now t pay attention here to verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So there's another aspect of this command to adore God, and it's this. Our adoration of God should be 
irrespective of the benefits we receive or do not receive from him. Now think about this. Peter here is telling his readers and us that the prophets, when they prophesied about the glory of the suffering of Christ and the glory that was to follow, were not primarily ministering to themselves, but to us. Now, they still benefited, of course, from the gospel. The sufferings of Christ and the glory that was to follow is a nice summary of what the gospel is. Jesus came into the world. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father, ready to come to judge the living and the dead. That's the gospel. But what's really astonishing is what Peter tells us at the end of verse 12. These are things into which angels long to look. The angels have no need of redemption. The angels have no need of a savior to condescend to us, to get dirty with our sins, to experience all the sorrow and humiliation of being human, to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, and to be exalted at the right hand of God. The angels don't need anyone to do this for them. Nonetheless, they contemplate the benefits of the gospel that we receive with the desire to look more carefully into them. And if they, who have no need of the gospel, do this, how much more should it be our preoccupation to look into this gospel from which we have been so benefited? The command to adore God. What are some hindrances to adoring God? What are the reasons that keep us from engaging in heartfelt, constant adoration? The most obvious hindrance for some of you, perhaps I should say some of us, is never having been converted to the gospel. There are some people for whom the language of adoration is completely foreign. It would never occur to them to think of church or of Bible reading or of prayer or of any of these things with delight or with relish. There are some people who read the Bible and some people who pray and some people who go to church and what they're really looking for is for everything to end. The service is too long. The chapter is too long. I really don't enjoy praying. Now I have more to say about that in the life of those who are truly converted in a moment. But for some people, the reason why they can't adore God or won't adore God is because they have never been brought from death to life by the Spirit of God. And if that's you, pray that the Spirit of God would breathe life into your soul that so that you would begin for the first time to delight in the God that you have come to worship. Secondly, for those who are believers, one of the great hindrances to adoring God is our remaining corruption or our remaining sin. 
There are some people who heard what I just said about the difficulty involved in, endor in adoring God and concluded, well, maybe I'm not converted because I find Bible reading difficult. I find prayer a drag often. The difference between you and the person who does these things out of duty is that for the person who finds it a drag, there's never any regret. There's never any remorse for finding these things a drag. What does Paul say in Romans 7? The good that I wish to do, I do not. But the evil that I do not want to do, that's what I keep on doing, he says. I find then a law that when I would do good, the very moment at which I wish to do good, evil is present with me. Tell me that this isn't true of your life. You haven't had time throughout the day to read scripture or to pray. And you decide, I'm going to spend a half hour praying, reading, meditating on scripture. And your intentions are good. You feel that at that moment, if God were to judge you by your intentions, he would find no fault with you. Okay, maybe that's going a bit too far. Nonetheless, your desire is there. The delight in God's word is there. But the moment you sit down to read, it feels about as dry as a bone. Or when you try to pray, your mind wanders. When you try to adore God and think on his greatness, meditate on the promises that he's made to you of, of complete and final salvation, or the promises that he has made to you of not leaving you or forsaking you, at those moments, your heart feels as cold as a stone. Isn't that, is that not the case? That's often the case for a believer. But the, again, the difference between the unconverted person who experiences coldness or experiences no joy in Bible reading or prayer or in being with other believers in, in church. The difference between those two people is that the unconverted person doesn't have any regret or any remorse over the fact that he's ready to get this over with. Whereas the child of God often makes a part of his prayer the confession, Lord, I want to delight in you more. Forgive me for not doing so. There is no reason why I should not have complete delight in your grace and in your goodness and in your love for me. But I find that I'm distracted by many things. I'm distracted by my envy. I'm distracted by my lust. I'm distracted by my jealousy. I'm distracted by the fact that I am anxious over my finances. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive me for these things. Is that not often the believer's experience? The third hindrance related to the second is the tendency of believers to backslide. Take a look with me at Revelation 2. Revelation 2. 
Revelation 2, beginning at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your, <clears throat> and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now catch, catch this. This church, by all outward appearances, was a prosperous church. They were faithful in proclaiming the gospel. They were faithful in doctrine. They were faithful in the exercise of discipline. In other words, if there were people in the church who were disrupting the body, the church was careful to weed them out and to make sure that God was being honored. They were also apparently enduring some suffering. Now, how many of you would like to be a part of a church like that? I think we all would want to be. Nonetheless, Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They had become a church that was really good at orthodoxy, right doctrine. They had become a church that was very good at making sure that the people within the church were holy. But there was no love in it. Their hearts had grown cold in the midst of the performance of correct duty. And you say, Cody, these people hadn't ba backslidden. They were still functioning. Yeah, they outwardly were functioning. It's like a marriage, again, where all of the duties are performed with, I'm going to use an, an, an old word here. Some of you will know it. Punctiliousness. Punctilious just is a word that means they were performed precisely and without any irregularity. There wasn't anything that was left out. So, you know, some of you, you know, when you, when you get together for uh, lunch today, you can say, hey, I learned a new word, punctilious. It's the teacher in me. <laughs> but think about the marriage where people do the regular round of responsible things, you know. They enjoy regular conjugal relations with each other. Food is put on the table. Dishes are done. Kids are gotten off to school. The shopping is done. But there's no communication about other than the duties, the responsibilities. There is not any longer the spontaneous saying of I love you or spontaneously praising the spouse for what he or she is and has done. Well, if things can happen like that in a, in a marriage, they surely can happen in our relationship with God, where the duties become mechanical, where we do what we're supposed to do because we're trying to be obedient. I'm going to grit my teeth. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do because God says so. 
but there's not the spontaneous rupture in our souls when we cry out inwardly, God, you are great. You are worthy of my love. You are worthy of my affection. Kindle within me the sweetness of love and delight that I had with you at first. So we have in scripture the command to adore God because adoring God is that for which we have primarily been made and some of the hindrances. We can either fail to adore God because we are unconverted, because of our remaining corruption, and because of the tendency to backslide. What's one benefit of adoring God? I want to talk about just one, and I'm borrowing this from both uh, Tim Keller's book on prayer and his discussion of C.S. Lewis on the topic of praise. Because C.S. Lewis had this problem. He said, well, you know, we tend to not like people who constantly draw attention to themselves. Praise me. <laughs> but he said, here's, here's what, I, what I hadn't noticed. Praising what we love is almost spontaneous. We barely even think about it. And he gives several examples. We might praise a great book. Hey, you read this book lately? It's a great book. You should read it. You'll really enjoy it. How many of you say that to one another? Sometimes, right? Unless you're like most Americans and don't read, I suppose. Um, or, or you might praise a, a good piece of music or a sunset or anything. Think of anything. There are some politicians and statesmen that we even praise. We think of people like Winston Churchill or Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, I mean, depending on your outlook on American history, you might find that both of those are not worthy of praise. I'll leave that to you to decide. Or one might be more worthy of praise than the other. Um, but nonetheless, there is this tendency we have as human beings to praise what we love, and we do it spontaneously. And there's a sense, Lewis says, in which we become better as a result of praising what we love. I love the way he defines praise. He says, praise is inner health made audible. Praise is inner health made audible. Think of the snob who can never praise a good meal unless it meets certain standards. Or think of the person who hears a sermon and spends more time trying to figure out what grammar to correct than actually enjoying the message that he or she has heard. Or the person who hears worship music and is disgruntled by the fact that a guitar was used or that no music was used rather than the organ or the piano. Well, those are people who are inwardly unhealthy. People 
may have their preferences, and we all do. But the person who is intent on praising is the person who will find something good, even about that which they might otherwise, you know, have to part company with for one reason or another. But with God, there is never a reason for us not to praise. So the great benefit of praising is that we become more inwardly healthy as a result of our adoration. So let me give you just two tips, two ways of increasing adoration this coming year. The first, and this, this one sounds like the most obvious one, in order to adore God, we must spend time with God. Many times devotions, Bible reading, prayer, even to the best of us, can seem very difficult to do. Our minds are somewhere else. We find the Bible sometimes dry, especially uh, the genealogies or those passages that talk um, extensively about the sorts of offerings that are to be offered in the temple or in the tabernacle. But in order to adore God, we must know God. And the only way, from a Christian point of view, we can know God is to spend time with him reading the scriptures, praying, and learning how to love one another. And so those disciplines, those daily disciplines of Bible reading and prayer will help increase our adoration. Secondly, learn to make it a habit. And again, I'm borrowing this from Keller, who got it from Lewis. Learn to make it a habit to adore God for the things that seem to have nothing to do with him. So for example, you're reading a new book. Maybe it's a novel. It doesn't even have to be a Christian or religious novel. It could just be any novel. But you love the language. You love the, the, the cadence. You love the characters. Loving a novel can be an opportunity for us to turn that love of the book into adoration for God or viewing a sunset or holding the hand of your spouse can become the occasion for adoring God because if he is the author of everything then there is nothing for which we cannot adore him now none of us is going to do this perfectly and so at the end what we must come back to is when I'm conscious of my imperfect ability to adore God, I can say to God, Lord, I thank you that there is one who constantly adores you, who constantly loves you with heart, soul, mind, and strength on my behalf, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank you for that example, that he did it to fulfill all righteousness, but that he also provides the model for me to continue to grow in this adoration. Let's pray together. Before we pray, I do want to say one other thing. I mentioned John Murray a moment ago. And just to give you a sense of where he was and where we often are, I want you to think about this. It was a Lord's Day morning, a Sunday morning, and a Sunday service had just ended. 
and one of his students, and Murray was a teacher, came up to him and said, hey, have you, have you graded our papers yet? This is right after the service. Murray completely ignored him and wouldn't answer his question. The next day, back at school, Murray found this young man, began walking arm in arm with him, and said, I didn't mean to ignore you, but I had gotten such a blessing from the sermon that I didn't want to lose any of it by talking to you about that just then. Father, we pray that you would help us to learn what it means to adore you, to love you, not simply because you have saved us, but simply because you are God, because you are worthy of praise and love and adoration simply for being the God that you are. Father, if you had never created any world, you would still be worthy of everlasting praise. Or if you had created us and simply left us to ourselves after we had sinned, you would still be worthy of praise. Father, bring it home to each of our hearts that you are God and we are not. Forgive us our sins. Cause us to grow in our love for you and for one another. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.